cliffcentral.com. All right, all right, all right. It is a Thursday morning, which means we get to do the burning platform. It's your chance to catch up on all of the things that are going on in the news, all of the stuff that we are most affected by, and the things that we want to try and unpack and understand. And in South Africa, that can be, (laughs) in some situations, very complicated. In other situations, very, very easy. Of course, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Pumi Mashiho. And Pumi, we're going to talk about something that I think um, everybody wants to get into this morning. Something that's really, it's been there the whole time, but it's raised its ugly head in a very, very dramatic way in the last couple of of weeks. And um, we hope that it's not a trend. We hope that this is something which will go away. But we've got to talk about security. We've got to talk about tavern shootings. We've got to talk about guns. And I know this is also stuff that's come up a few times on the show. We have two experts at hand to be able to help us get into some of this, both of whom have been on the show before. And I'm thrilled to welcome them back. First, Gideon Hubert, who is uh, an independent security consultant. He's also an advanced level firearm instructor. He's written several published articles about responsible and lawful firearm use in South Africa over the past 10 years. Gideon, nice to see you. Gareth and Pumi, thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's always a pleasure being here. Looking no, forward to it. No problem at all. Always good to have you in, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. We also have Dr. Gerard Labiskachny, who is a clinical psychologist. He's also a criminologist and an advocate of the High Court with an interest in, <coughs> in particular, forensic and investigative psychology. He's worked in the South African Police Services section head for the investigative psychology section and was the head profiler for the police for a very, very long time. He took over from the legendary Mickey Pistorius. It's great to have you on too. Thank you, Gerard, for your time this morning. Thanks, Jeremy. Looking forward to it. Right. So where should we begin? I mentioned to Pumi um, earlier that that we, we certainly hope it's not a trend, but in the last while we've seen an outbreak of these tavern shootings, and it seems to not be random, and it seems to not be something that we can just you know, gloss over. Um, if it was the, the headline news story in any other country, it would have stayed in the headlines for a very long time. Um, it's just South Africa where we have an orgy of violence around us and also where certain lives seem to be more important than other lives. You know, I mean, if it was the Riva Steenkamp story, for example, just to say, you know, the most famous uh, murder in the last however many years, then I suppose it would still be uh, everybody's focal point. But because these were unnamed, unknown people in a tavern in a poor neighborhood in the Eastern Cape, people are like, ah, you know, this is what happens in South Africa. It's an outrageous point of view. It's an outrageous opinion for so many people to hold, even <laughs> if they hold it, the, even if they hold it without uh, Gareth, directly saying so. Gareth, maybe the, the maybe then the, the right question to start with mm. is, is this something that happens in taverns in South Africa regularly and we just never hear about it? Is this really a thing? Well, gentlemen, would you like to have a go at that? And, and maybe you can correct uh, my, my question where I may be wrong and, and also take up, uh, take up Pumi on her question, which is a very good one. Like, is this something that happens all the time in South Africa? Hmm. Gerard, you would, you would know something about this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so the mass, I would like to say mass shootings is not something that, as far as I know, we sort of have on a regular basis. I do think that they would get into the um, media's attention, like the very first one. Obviously, yeah. the subsequent ones are building upon the previous ones in this time period when we had this, this bunch of them taking place. And I just think in terms of my own experience in the police, you know, our mass violence incidents were not regular occurrences. 
you know, sort of we had in 1999 in Tempe military base, there was a shooting where one of the employees who was a, I think a lieutenant went on a sort of rampage and I think shot five people, killed six others. Um, and that was sort of your typical workplace violence, almost like your other American sort of type of mass shootings. Right. You know, and then we had the, the Sizzlers case a couple of years ago, which was a robbery that went very wrong where they ended up shooting the, the, the people who were inside the massage parlor. You know, we had Rosebank police station a couple of years ago where, uh, you know, recently dismissed Edmund Clark, who was also apparently in charge of the firearm store, managed to get hold of a firearm and go shoot the HR captain who oversaw his um, um, no. dismissal and killed her and then shot the station commission and she survived before a member of the uh, one of the captains entered the room and the person took his own life. So you have these from time to time. Uh, so I do think that they would have been getting in the, into the media if we were having them. So I think, Puma, your question is relevant. Was it only just because the media just had a slow day and they decided to focus on them? But I do think we would have been hearing about mass shootings if they'd been happening sporadically or sort of fairly, fairly rarely. I agree with you, Gareth, that we have a, an interesting tolerance for violence. You know, we get very morally outraged at something and a week later we're back to normal. And I think, like you say, it's because we have violence fatigue. And because yeah. we also know perhaps that nothing really changes. So we get upset and then we move on because you're just going to drain yourself if you try to keep the momentum going for all of these massive amounts of issues that we have in our country when it comes to crime and violence. Well, we, I was talking to uh, Professor uh, Chris Sabo yesterday, who is, is a, you know, a psychiatrist and a, and a, and a well-known um, uh, expert on these things. And we were talking about the, the next season of Beyond Madness and what kinds of, of subject matter he wants to delve into. And he brought up compassion fatigue. And I think violence fatigue is, is, is linked to that. You know, in South Africa, for, for the average South African, there's just such a lot of this stuff going on all over the place that we've almost become numb uh, to it. And, and maybe, maybe it takes these extraordinary cases like the, the tavern incident in the Eastern Cape for people to go, oh, my God, this shouldn't be normal. Um, but but even from from the, the cases that you've cited there, and there were some that I vaguely remembered and some that I'd forgotten, mm-hmm. it still doesn't sound like this is the norm. Um, it still doesn't sound that this is this is unusual and extraordinary, and and probably should mm-hmm. be treated as such. We have seen some others happen as a result of that. Um, do you think there's any degree, just so we can we can say we've covered this ground, of copycat stuff going on there, or do you think? that they're unrelated. You know, with these American-style ones, do you see where you have this disgruntled human being who feels that life has turned against them, uh, Mm. they've been sort of pushed aside? There you do often see that where you have one, within a week you tend to have another one. Mm. Now, that was probably more a person who had this in the back of his mind and wanted to do it and is almost given that sort of final go-ahead by someone else doing it. I don't think it's going to start someone from scratch deciding, hey, let me just go and do this. So there has to be that tendency line in, in weight, so to speak. Mm. A one happens, and almost that gives that person the, the motivation to do his. The ones here in South Africa really don't seem to be like that psychologically motivated. These seem to be more general crime motivated, whether it's competing factions in a particular industry or area, um, because the ones in America typically end in a very different way than we saw here. Here we have these guys fleeing the scene. It's multiple offenders. It seems in most instances where these psychological ones tend to be the lone sort of lone wolf or lone actor type of offense. Mm-hmm. So I think these are what we're seen as more in the realm of the crime, crime sort of related criminal activities. As I said, factions, organized crime, whatever term you want to give it. So I don't think in that case 
it is weird. I mean, to have so many in a short period of time, statistically, it's just an anomaly. And I think, as you say, we do need to look at if there are links between these. And as far as I can tell from my colleagues in the police, they have looked into that and they don't seem to be. And unless something in the past 10 days, because I was overseas, has come up. Mm. So these, it is weird that they're happening, sort of a bunch of them in one go. Uh, but they do apparently seem to be not related to each other. Um, whether one inspired another one, like I said, I think you would have really had to have had the inclination and the idea in your head before you go and do something like this anyway. I don't think somebody from scratch is going to be inspired, suddenly have a grievance, suddenly think this is the best way to deal with it, etc., and go up and do it. I think one of the things that it has brought into into, into the sharp reality for most of us South Africans is the level of breakdown in the police force. So the capacity in the police force to to deal with these types of things is and just general lawlessness as it, you you know, because that's what it also what also happens, right? Is you push the boundaries and you push the boundaries, the first group of people push it to this and then, you know, kind of goes, Oh, it's easy, you can try it out, you can do it. Is mm. this also what we're seeing, kind of yeah. this breakdown in the police force and what's being done, I suppose, to, yeah. uh, to, to reinforce or to build up again the capacity in these forces. Yeah. Look, definitely, if people, you know, you can have the most amazing laws, you can have, you know, a minimum sentence act which gives life for this type of offence and, and X amount for that type of offence. So, and we do have pretty good laws, I must say. Our laws are very well written, I think, um, but the problem is if people don't think they're actually going to get caught and actually going to get prosecuted and convicted and sentenced, then, you know, that almost creates space where it doesn't matter whether you've got the death sentence or not, for example. If they don't think they're going to get caught and punished, there's no incentive not to do it. So the less faith we have in the police, the easier it is for people to naturally start to push the boundaries of behavior, which, of course, includes uh, criminal behavior also. So, yes, I do think I don't think bad policing causes crime. But I do definitely think it, if you don't have good policing, it's almost as if the brakes are off. You know, so, there are other factors that are going to be the momentum that gets the bus rolling, like, you know, poverty, et cetera, et cetera, inequality. But, you know, the police are almost like the brakes that are there to keep that bus from getting out of control. And unfortunately, our police service is, is just, it's in a downward spiral that I really don't think we're going to recover from, to be very, and I'm not typically a pessimistic person, but I just don't see from the top down to the bottom that any of the right decisions are being made. I think any of us dreads having to go to the police station, even to get an affidavit signed, yeah. commissioned. Um, I dread it, and I'm an ex-brigadier in the police. So yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just that's a very sad scenario. That's terrible, uh, Hideon. I'm going to bring you in here. So, first of all, comments from you on on the tavern uh, shootings, and then uh, a, a comment on the police um, before we move on to to some other specifics. I'm going to do my best not to cover ground we already have, because I think Dr. Lubbersgachny's commentary was quite extensive. I think when you look at tavern shootings like this, and you can see certain similarities to what's happening uh, with taxi violence in KZD, you can draw certain parallels to gang violence uh, on the flats for the simple reason that in the in the one where the Zamazamas are definitely involved because there have been several tavern shootings, uh, you can see I, I'm quoting Mark Shaw here. He was the author of a very good book called mm. Give Us More Guns that, that really detail how state-issued firearms ended up in the hands of gangsters and criminals. Mm. He referred to these as, as mafia-style attacks in the sense that they are you know copycat from, from what the mob in the U.S. used in order 
to facilitate economic gain for these uh, various criminal groups uh, in order or, or, or through a application of violence in order to cause harm to their direct or indirect competitors. When we saw the one tavern shooting involved uh, an off-duty Metro police officer, I started getting a little bit suspicious for the mm. simple reason, and, and this is quite a tragic thing to say, the degree of criminal infiltration into the steps itself. And, and it's not just a problem that affects the police service. When you look at the taxi violence situation in KZN, where you have taxi bosses that actually own their own security companies and somehow... Uh, that goes beyond my, well, not really beyond my understanding, but, but that beggars mm. belief. These security companies end up licensing Section 20 firearms completely fraudulently because, firstly, half of them are not even zero registered. Therefore, there's no way in heck that they have actual SAPS accreditation, which is what they would need as a security company to even license those guns. And then you hear shocking reports of that they're getting licenses issued in the space of two days where an ordinary security company waits up to a year or longer. So there's definitely, when you look at, at the, the relationships between criminal organizations, uh, the politicians who benefit from their activities, plus give them protection, who can be quite high ranking in many instances, plus mm. high ranking police officers are also involved in it. You start developing a, a picture of... Um, not not as much dysfunction, but a true sort of gangster t- state operation. And I know not very long ago we had a mass shooting in Kailicha. I suspect that one was taxi-related, but uh, there's also been a bit of a ramp-up, if I'm anecdotally remembering remember correctly, of political violence in KZN, where there are more and more councillors being shot at if they're not being outright assassinated. I think... In a way, these events are not necessarily directly connected, but they're all part of the same uh, ecosystem of violence. With the police itself, what's concerning for me is uh, numerous things. I mean, apart from the fact that the the former national commissioner admitted to parliament in 2018, I think, that the SAPS is overstretched and that it's impossible for the service to fulfill its constitutional mandate. Apart from all the broken blue line reports that have been written on it by, by the RR that sort of detail the extent of criminal infiltration in the steps, there's one number that keeps jumping out at me, and it's when you look at the civilian ratio or police to civilian ratio in mm. SA. What is we it? We have about uh, – so it's supposed to be, according to, I think there's some form of United Nations standard, that's one police officer per every uh, roughly 350 members of the public. If I go look at the figures of the amount of SAPS officers that are performing visible policing duties, those are the cops that you and I will interact with on a daily basis. There's roughly 24,400 VISPOM members on shift on a daily basis. If you work in a – you need to take the total number and divide it by four because mm-hmm. it's um, a four-shift rotational basis. And then factor in about a 20% figure for those that are on leave, they're on course, they're off, off sick. You only have about 19,500 SAPS officers in uniform doing visible duties per shift at any given time in this country, which is one police officer roughly per every 3,077 citizens, which is a ratio that is 10 times worse than the minimum recommended one. Um, that is kind of where we're sitting with the situation. Jeez. Well, what, what do you say to this, uh, Gideon, while you're on about the police? Uh, Rusty says he was listening to Big Daddy, Sitle uh, Ngobese, and Sitle was saying that there are over 4,000 SAPS members who have criminal records. Uh, does that sound right to you, or does that sound like, uh, like a made-up figure? 
I saw a figure a while back, and maybe Dr. Lebeskovny can correct me. I can I remember that it was a bit higher than that. But sure. what is concerning about this is that, firstly, this number is known. It is detected. And there seems to have been a repeated failure of addressing it within the, the ranks because this, this is not a new story. I think the first time we, we read about it was almost 10 years ago about SAPS members with criminal records, mm-hmm. some of them holding fairly high-ranking positions and equally some of them even uh, being deemed competent to carry firearms, although mm-hmm. that's a separate discussion altogether. Sure. Well, do you, do you have any any follow up on that on that information there, Gerard? And then and then Pums and I have some other questions. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any specific stats, but I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if those were accurate figures at all. Unfortunately, I remember in the past when I was in the police, there was concerns about people you know, serving SAPS members having criminal records. So it's a long-standing issue, I think, as Gideon pointed out. And yeah, those those stats wouldn't surprise me at all, to be honest with you. Pum, sorry, I interrupted you. You know, so Gideon, you talk about kind of the, the private security business and and then the rise thereof, because almost like everything else in South Africa, there's private sector have stepped in where there has been government kind of wholesale government failure. And a couple of weeks ago, I think um, there was much shock and outrage kind of reverbing through the news cycle when Investec in London uh, decided that they're going to be giving their top executives a an additional, I think, two million rand stipend for personal security. Um, also, as a safeguard because of the criminality and how crimes and, and in particular in South Africa. I'm quite interested to know your your view and your experience with regards to that. You know, to is this a growing part of security systems in South Africa? And how are we dealing with these kidnappings? There was a very big story a couple of weeks ago with those Morty boys and and then nothing ever since. Is it a problem? Is it something people should be worried about, especially like rich people? <laughs> there, there certainly is something that, that is a concern, and there has been an, a rather extensive increase in the amount of or the number of kidnappings, especially from quarter one last year to the current one. Uh, I do not have the statistics quite on hand, but it was a, a massive increase, I think close to 100%, if I recall the figure correctly, which is humongous. Kidnapping is a, a major problem. It's a... It was already a, a, a slightly problematic statistic, and it has been rising. It hasn't gotten an extensive amount of media coverage, and this, as you mentioned, it's a couple of high-profile cases. And the close protection service, as rendered by private security companies in South Africa, is especially to high net worth individuals, has always been a healthy industry. But I think the in people like Investec or uh, corporates like Investec who are concerned about their um, the more high-level executives and their safety in South Africa with specific reference to the risk of being kidnapped. I don't think that's them being unrealistic or, or hysterical or at all. I think that's a very, very good decision pertaining to managing that risk as best as possible. And unfortunately, it is a reflection on the overall state of the South African crime milieu and, and ambience and, and the, what we're wow. dealing with on a daily basis. I think we mustn't forget that we are, unfortunately, one of the most violent countries on earth. It doesn't mean the problem isn't fixable. It doesn't mean there are some very good solutions, but that is the reality that we currently find ourselves in. Sure. 
Okay, yeah, private security, though, on the app everywhere. I mean, um, I was talking to someone just the other day, and, and they said that they go, they take their kid to school, um, one of the schools, and some of the parents um, send their kids to school with security guards uh, who, who see them in and then uh, drive away afterwards and collect them in the afternoons. I mean, these are just kids at schools, for heaven's sake. So it's happening in South Africa. I always thought this was the province of, you know, kind of South American... Man uh, on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but pr- particularly those South Americans who are always worried about some cartel, uh, you know, grabbing their kid and then holding them for ransom. Um, it's not something that you thought would be happening on our own do- doorstep. Um, do you have any comments on that, Gerard? Yeah, I mean, look, we definitely saw 20... There's always been kidnappings in South Africa, kidnappings for extortion. I mean, just one always has to be careful with the stats because the definition of kidnapping legally is depriving someone of their freedom. So if you lock them in a room, that's technically kidnapping. So, you know, when we look at the raw figures, it gives a very, very, people start to think, oh, wow, that's the number of kidnappings for ransom. Um, but definitely from about 2016, saw this, this, the, the high net value kind of kidnappings where, you know, people are being kidnapped for 40, 50 million rand ransoms, specifically amongst the, the Muslim community in South Africa. I think Omar Karim was the first big one. And it was really a, the sort of gangs that were operating in Mozambique and other parts of Southern Africa that just felt obviously South Africa is ripe for this type of crime. Hmm. And they've been massively successful because in terms of these big high-profile kidnappings, uh, yeah, Shiraz got two, I think it was in 2016, 2017, if I recall correctly, and, and numerous ones. Um, these guys have been very successful. They make a lot of money off of doing this. Um, wow. And, you know, the police are not catching these people. I mean, in these big high-profile cases, there's been almost no arrests. You hear every, every now and then one or two arrests, but, you know, not in these big, these sort of quick kidnap cartels. And, I mean, these, these have international links. They have the best cybersecurity. They're probably not ever going to catch these guys because um, they're far better resourced than the police are. And, you know, they're using the technology to, to their benefit. And as I say, they're making fortunes. So I think we've also seen some of the cash and transit crowd who, who are starting to dabble in this particular industry because it's a lot less risk, um, you know, planning, yes, but it's a lot less risk and, and, and big payoffs. Mm-hmm. And my big fear is that you get the sort of fly-by-night ones. You, I think it's always better if you're kidnapped by a professional crowd because you will get released. You, will, you know, someone will pay money, you'll get released, and you'll be relatively well looked after. But if you're kidnapped by these chances who think they're going to take a, take a, you know, have a try at this type of industry, those are the ones that I've been far more worried about in terms of your safety. We saw that in the Eastern Cape where a lot of sort of small business Pakistani nationals were getting kidnapped for smaller amounts yeah. with a drop off, you know, the bag being dropped off here, that kind of a place. And those are the ones that I said that are very worrying if I was the victim um, compared to the high profile ones. But I mean, we had yesterday, um, you know, we had the Motti children, which was an unusual one. The typical kidnappings of kids in South Africa tend to be more in terms of custody issues and drug debt. Um, but the sort of Motti kids is the Motti children. That's again, that's more like these big high profile ones that we saw yesterday, I think in Kensington and Cape Town or the day before yesterday, where a young boy was kidnapped. And it's also looking like one of these high value kidnappings. They tend to target less, more the corporate figures um, and they target more the, the sort of wealthy business families that they, they perceive to have a lot of money that they can materialize without having to go through the hoops. I mean, if you kidnap the CEO of ABSA, Apps um, is not going to pay that money. Um, <laughs> they might have ransom insurance, but you know it's more difficult to get that money out of Apps than it is to get it out of a Motti family, for example. Yeah. Wow, Pumi, I mean, your, your and my eyes just popped out of our heads with, with all of this. And well, I mean, I, there, there are three things that jump out at me on, on that. 
50 million for for ransoms that like that kind of it's it's mind-boggling for me that's like sofa money you know that's like several sofa money it's not just (laughs) (laughs) but but i'm also interested and and the second thing as around the the Mozambique, and I mean, we now know that Mozambique has basically become a narco state, right? Mm. And and the easiness with which that kind of that enterprise, as you called it, has travelled across the border to yeah. us, and the level of sophistication employed, like international networks. Yeah. So how do Look, we I mean, fix it? Yeah. Oh, well, a you have to improve your police. You have to. I mean. Even till today, the police have a, they call it a kidnapping task team that they put together, but it's, it's about, I think, as far as I know, four or five people. They don't get involved in all these cases. How much interaction they're having with their overseas colleagues who are dealing with these, technology-wise, whether they've got the right number of people on board, I don't know. Um, and then we also saw one of the people in this, this sort of national kidnapping task team was arrested for trying to extort money out of one of the victim's families. It's, it's just mm-hmm. kind of bizarre. So the solution, I don't know. I mean, obviously, these groups felt it's time and it's ready, and they've set up whatever structures in inside the police system, um, and it's time to do this. And they've been very successful. Um, I mean, again, rumors of policemen who are involved at least in sort of snatching part of the victim. And it's typically the victim's handed over to a separate group whose job it is to look after. And the person you're talking to when you negotiate is probably sitting in a foreign country, and your money is going to be sent off to a different country. So it's, it's such a massive way that even if you catch the people who kidnap the person or the people who are holding the person, um, that's just one part of this process. You know, you're not, you're not getting the guys who are sitting in, for example, Pakistan, masterminding all of this. Uh, let me ask both of you a, a, a fairly general question, but it is something that I think a lot of people jump to. Now, you mentioned Mozambique, and instantly I started thinking, uh-oh, because uh, there are a lot of local criminals who like to blame foreign nationals, and there are a lot of foreign nationals who say, no, no, we're getting the blame from local criminals. What do you think the ratio is there? And I mean, this is a thumbsuck for either of you. There's no way we can actually figure out precisely where this is. But does it require a kind of international level a criminal operation, or are there sophisticated enough levels of criminal operation in South Africa for us to pull this off without having to bring in you know, people from Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Pakistan, God knows where else. Look, I do think you get your local crowd. I, look, I, I think it's a very convenient thing to blame it all on foreigners. Yeah. It also absolves us of having to accept some responsibility. No, it's our own people and it's our own circumstances that are yes. leading to this. Yeah. Um, but I think if you, if you probably took a, a survey of people sitting in prison, I'd probably say off the top of my head, the overwhelming majority of South Africans. Hmm. But look at the cases I worked on the police you know, good old fashioned South Africans committing these crimes. Of course, you get foreigners, um, as you do with any country. But I think, you know, until somebody drops some stats in front of me that are done by a reputable organization, you know, I'm not going to go around blaming foreigners for, for what's the crime that's taking place in our country. And what's a South African police's capability or kind of working with international? organizations, you know, international police organizations as well, because this this is what it sounds like, right? So if the criminals are multinational, there needs to be some kind of multinational capability, even in the police force, in order to be able to do something, 
Otherwise, we're just sitting ducks. Do we have that capacity? And, and didn't Jackie Salibi ruin that for us as well? I mean, we, we did no, have... No, I wasn't going to talk about Jackie Salibi. <laughs> I wasn't going to... I was, like, biting my tongue about Jackie Salibi. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one. He's yeah. the one that started this entire floodgate. Look, I think the structures are there for us to, to liaise with foreign law enforcement. I mean, at the American Embassy, you'll have representatives of the FBI, DEA, all these agencies who are there to assist, you know, where possible. Um, and I do recall that some of the cases that I worked on when I was still in the police as a officer negotiator, there was interaction case by case. But I don't know if there's really on a, on a meta level this, let's get together people and see how we can resolve, you know, these types of, you know, working together on a permanent basis as opposed to a case by case basis. I think that's for me what starts to have happening. We need to be liaising almost on these international anti-kidnapping task teams and not today we have a case that maybe there's a link to this country let's start to speak to that country and ask hey we've got this case can you assist mm. you almost need to have structures set up in place and also sharing with what's happening in that country maybe we can pick up trends earlier that we can counteract i don't see that happening um mm. why i don't know but i think the potential is there for them to do it it's not like it's an impossible process to start getting going and i've always found foreign law enforcement quite happy to to you know to help uh, respond and assist uh, just people have to get off their backsides and start to initiate it so let's uh, go where we we also love to go wow. whenever, whenever Gideon's on the show it's always useful for us to talk about firearms and legal firearm ownership in south africa and i know pumi you got into a quite heated argument not so long ago with mighty jamie about precisely this you know we can't clearly, based on just the discussion we've had this morning, let alone all the other um, associated discussions you can have with people's own experience out there with police, you can't really rely on the cops in a, a situation of life and death. Uh, it's, it's probably better to have a gun and not need one than to need a gun and not have one in a country like South Africa. I think, you know, politically and ideologically, there are people who are very much against guns. Uh, politically and ideology, uh, ideologically, there are people who are very much for them. Uh, I don't want to get into that debate, but, but how are we doing, Gideon, in terms of, uh, of the latest developments in firearms control? I know that there was an important case that was won by Martin Hood and others at the um, SCA recently. What's the current status quo for, for legal, lawful firearm owners and and have you got any updates for us from the last time we spoke about this in a much more general sense? So with regards to the big bill, that was mm. uh, the proposed uh, amendment last year that was uh, originated from the Civilian Secretariat. That one has still been sort of placed on the back burner by the Portfolio Committee, uh, the Police Portfolio Committee, that deprioritized de it as such in their words, simply because of, of several factors, one of the major being that there was a humongous public outcry against the contents. I mean, the, the idea of banning the ownership of firearms in South Africa for purposes of self-defense, and then you had chaps like Bekitzele and Jeremy Veri come out and say, no, there's no good reason to own guns in this country for self-defense. Veri himself going to court to try and get his close protection detail back after it was removed with his dismissal and Tsele going everywhere with a, uh, an entire sort of squad of NIU or um, TRT protection officers. It's, it's just a ridiculous pantomime. So, yeah. so that, got, that, that, that got killed temporarily. It probably will be back and we'll have to have another shot at, at, at bashing it 
uh, into submission. But I think with the complete disarray Parliament is in right now and the fact that after the December elective conference, the ANC, who really the only party who's really keen on pushing this, will probably be getting their house in order for the next election. So we may have quite a bit of breathing space on it. Uh, the other thing that's, that's, I think, important for people to know mm-hmm. is that one of the, the, the major reason that's put forward for the banning of civilian guns is because allegedly civilian guns end up in the hands of criminals, and that's where the major source. Again, I'm referring to Mark Shaw in his book. He debunks that solidly for several reasons. The one is Colonel Chris Prinsler, by himself, just him alone, this excludes everyone else that was involved in that racket and still are involved in the racket, mm-hmm. sold 9,000 state-issue guns to criminals by himself. The other thing is that... The firearm loss statistics that the SAPs publish every year is wholly inaccurate. They only publish their service weapon losses that uh, are lost off the individual officers, either stolen or they lose them or there's something else that happens. The amount of losses that occur out of the SAP-13 evidence stores, which includes decommissions or rather SAPs firearms that are in the process of being decommissioned. They get booked out of the armory into the SAP-13. There are no figures on the annual losses out of those stores available at all. When there was a pie request sent in, two of them, for um, those figures to be made public, they were, to, they were refused twice. The first, the first answer was that, no, the general public won't be able to understand the complexity of the figures, which is <laughs> a wonderful thing to say. Like the police will. Then, Exactly. This, the second one was a bit more illuminating in the sense that they said, we do not have the figures uh, handy and it is impossible to generate them because it would require a national audit of every SAP 13 locker, its contents and its all its registries so that they have absolutely no idea um, at station level, by the way, what the loss figure or the loss rate is. So it's it's now a kind of well and generally accepted fact that the losses out of the, where the, the criminals get their state issue guns from are usually from SAP 13 lockers. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what the loss rate out of those are. So that to me kind of kills that argument of the But I love the way that threat. the, I love the way that the police who can't seemingly keep uh, their own weapons and, and look after their own weapons and, and, and stop criminals from getting their hands on them. They want to blame the public uh, for the, the rare occasions when our firearms are stolen, usually violently, yeah. and usually when someone is killed. It's just outrageous, actually. And then to turn yeah. that on us and say, you guys are the source of all of these, um, these unlicensed weapons that are being carried around by, by gangsters and thugs. Please, yeah. do me a favor. And, and I mean, the, the irony of it is, it's kind of like saying we can't, we can't combat housebreakings, and in housebreakings, they steal people's TVs. So we're going to ban you guys from owning TVs, and then we won't have TV theft. It's like <laughs> you're making, blaming us for your failures, right? Or like you know, cars get hijacked. So everybody, public transport from now on, hey, we've solved the. the you know, you're, mm. we're we're paying for their mistakes. I mean, and yeah. just to carry on what Kirin was saying, you know, the Witt School of Governance report, which was, a, if I'm not mistaken, commissioned by the police to look into firearm violence, mm-hmm. which the police refused to release for years. And they were quoting that when they referred to the bill that Gideon mentioned just now to make these changes. And when finally that they, we managed to get that, not we, me, but it was managed to get that report released, we realized, A, they actually either can't read a report or they were intentionally misquoting it because what they were using to justify these changes in the act actually was not what their very own report said. And the very own report said that the biggest loser of firearms is the government, not private individuals. So again, you know, um, you know, 
blaming the private individuals for the gun crime that's taking place in the country. And that report actually said that when there was dips in crime, uh, gun violence in South Africa, it wasn't because the 2004 Firearms Control Act was implemented. It wasn't because of amnesties. It was because of more active policing and better policing that mm-hmm. led to a decrease firearms crime. And firearms activists love to sort of say, yeah, but we know after that was implemented, we had a decrease. But we had a decrease in murder rates with firearms for years prior to the point of that Firearms Control Act. So they like to kind of define the decrease as a date that that act was implemented. Not saying, but let's look at the rate for a couple of years prior to it. And, of course, we've had a consistent increase in murder rates, you know, for the past 10 years. So, you know, it's, it's about better policing. I'm not saying we shouldn't have farms. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid farms owner, and I say, yes, I, I don't want – a lot of people shouldn't probably have farms because they're not sure. responsible enough. Yeah. But, you know, well, I think, control, yes, but better policing. Otherwise, this is just going to escalate. You know, I, I mean, the issue of better policing, there's no way that anybody can be against that. I mean, very famously, Rudy Giuliani's um, solving the crime issue in New York was also about better policing and kind of policing the small visible crimes and more police being in in the place. But I'm also very interested in kind of the issues of personal safety and what individuals, with or without a firearm, what it is that we as individuals need to be more aware of, right? So that we are safer, you know, in Mm. in the absence of better policing, in the absence of how do I, as an individual, kind of be more aware of myself and my surroundings so that I am a safer individual and how to respond to environments like that. Well, you've, Does, come, you've come to the right place, Pumi. These two are probably the best people to help us address that. We'll start with you, Gideon, because you actually do consulting in this in this realm as well. Uh, where do you think people have these um, these blind spots uh, where, they, where they end up becoming victims? I'm so glad, uh, Pumi, you asked this question. Uh, and you actually kind of already answered it in your question is it, that your first and most effective defense mechanism is situational awareness. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially your understanding and, and awareness of where you are, where you're busy going, and what is going on around you. And the biggest blind spot is actually the most simple and stupid one you can imagine. And it's the fact that people leave their homes. They are no longer in a safe, controlled environment the moment you leave your house. Um, that's why a great number, I think the, the majority of hijackings occur in people's driveways just before they get home because they are at their lowest level of alertness in that space, even though they're still mm-hmm. out in public. People get sucked into their phones. The next time you stop at a red robot or at a stop street, just take a look around you as to it's what amazing. people in their vehicles are busy doing. Um, they get sucked into these little screens in front of them about, you know, this in front of their face, and they lose all awareness, as in no peripheral, nothing. And then you wonder why smash and grab attacks happen the way they do, why there's, or why, how people get, get mugged as part of street crime. So your situational awareness is, above all else, your single most important defensive tool. Um, I think a guy called Kelly McCann, who wrote a series of really good books on combatives for street survival, and I, I enjoy his his philosophies. He says your first, first rule of combatives is to avoid offensively. That means you almost in an aggressive manner avoid situations that, that you deem to be dangerous or, or undesirable. And if you can't avoid them, you evade, evade them, that is attempt to escape. And the third 
then element is if you cannot do either of those two things, then you fight and you have to fight with everything you have in you to prevail. And that is an element of mindset. Uh, we call a combative mindset is you are willing to do whatever it takes to win. The second part of that is you need to have a developed skill set to some degree. There's a lot of misconception about how skilled you have to be in order to effectively defend yourself. The average suburban housewife, the average um, sort of overweight middle-aged dad with, with a toddler, these are all people that can be readily and without extensive amounts of time and effort be, be taught to a level of proficiency where they can effectively defend themselves against the criminal if they have to. And then the third element that makes all that a lot easier than doing it with your empty hands is the toolkit or the tools you use, whether that is uh, a bat, whether that's pepper spray, whether that's a firearm. Um, I think we, we, when we talk personal safety, we really do overemphasize the firearm as the tool. I don't think uh, that mean we mustn't go the other way and, and, and think that guns aren't important. They certainly are, but, but there's so much more to them. They're just one element to mm. your personal safety toolbox. And just because you don't have a gun, for example, doesn't mean you can already not take, you know, you can, there's significant steps you can take to really make yourself a lot safer than you already are. Um, Harak, do, do you want to add to that? Because I think what Hideon has just said is so valuable. The, the fact that ordinary people, you don't have to be, you know, trained like you see these, uh, these, these paramilitary officers in, in movies. You don't have to be someone who goes and, and shoots at the range every single day. You don't have to be one of these people who has martial arts skills up the wazoo. You just have to be paying attention and, and learn a few yeah. basic skills. Um, in your experience, and also because you're a, a forensic guy and you're a psychologist, I mean, wh where do you think we miss the boat sometimes in South Africa? And how come so many people fall victim to stuff where they, if they were just paying attention, they'd get away with uh, with a lot more? Yeah, I think I think you didn't start it off with the most important one. That is a situational awareness. I mean, you can be a special forces ninja, but if you're not paying attention to what's going on around you, you can end up with a gun against your head, and then you know you're not going to fight. You're going to just hand over what they want or get shot. So I think that's the most important thing. Uh, being aware, you know, I always say criminals, no matter whether you're a rapist or a housebreaker or a hijacker, a vehicle hijacker, you want to choose the softest and easiest target to achieve your goals. Sure. So that's, and if you translate that into your house, I mean, he's going to, a person's going to walk around looking for a house to rob. He's going to look at obviously an area where he thinks people have stuff and then look at the house that has the least amount of security. Um, mm -hmm. So it is about target hardening, if you want to call it that, to your physical environment. But again, you know, pay attention to what's going on around you. They don't want to go for someone who it appears is paying attention, is is going to see them before them as they approach, etc. I mean, for just on a simple level for myself, I mean, I never drive into my parking space at home frontwards. I always reverse it because that gives me the best field of vision, left, right, and in front literally up until I'm inside my garage. And even then I can see if somebody's coming from the outside in and I can decide what I want to do, you know, stand my car on to drive and drive forward or, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, if you're going forward in, and especially as Cleon said, as you're on your phone, you know, if that guy was waiting for someone to drive into the driveway, you're the perfect target for them, no matter what right. your background, no matter whether you have a firearm or not. So target hardening to make it look like your house is the least attractive. Now, the sad thing is this doesn't stop crime. It just places it to the next person. But, you know, that this is what we can do on our own level yeah. to try and prevent us becoming victims. Yeah, I think that's useful information. I mean, just simple things like, as you say, reversing into your driveway rather than, than going in forward. And then obviously it also makes leaving the next morning 
that much easier because you're driving out with this field of vision rather than having to look backwards to see what's happening. Yeah, Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, a little thing, um, and yet so helpful and so useful. Um, are, you, are you an advocate for firearms ownership, or do you think that in South Africa there are a lot of people who should not have firearms, Gerard? Look, I think a lot of people in the world that shouldn't have them. You know, the, the Oscar Pistorius is who are irresponsible with their handling of firearms and shoots through the sunroof and, yeah. you know, behaves as if he's a cowboy trying to show off and, 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 and having to look at someone's gun in the middle of a busy restaurant. I mean, that is like the most irresponsible thing you can do. So I, I think, and I, and I like the fact that our Firearms Control Act has this whole issue of a competency certificate where you've got to go for some basic training. You've got to know how to dismantle your firearm, put it together mm-hmm. and shoot straight and know the law. I mean, that's the most important thing, well, as important as knowing what the law says about the handling of your firearm. Right. <clears throat> so I think it should be a situation that we should have the right that if we want one, um, we are able, if we qualify, to get one. And it's this, like, like Gideon said, this idiosity of saying, you know, the new proposed part of the bill is that you shouldn't be able to have a firearm for self-defense because we're going to protect you. It's, well, you can't protect us, firstly. And the response time, I think, for 9, 10, triple 1 is last time I checked, 45 minutes. If you're in the sure. Eastern Cape, it's two hours. Oh, wow. Um, you know, if, if you, I would say, you know, get the crime down to an internationally acceptable level, then come back to me and say, we've done it. You don't need to own a firearm for yeah. self-defense. And I'll say happily, sure, maybe for sports, collecting, but for self-defense, you've proved that we live in an absolutely safe society, then I don't need it for that purpose. <laughs> if I live in the UK or in Finland or Denmark, I sure as hell wouldn't probably feel the need to have a firearm back home for that purpose. But in the UK, you might there. just need a knife. <laughs> Yeah. Even then, carrying a knife is illegal, you know, um, yeah. for the average civilian. You're not allowed to carry a knife in the UK in your, mm-hmm. in your pocket. So so I think, yes, I think we should have the right to have them, whether it's for sports, collecting, um, self-defense, um, as long as you qualify and obey the law. And if you don't, you must be punished for that. But, you know, changing the firearms laws tend to just punish honest civilians because criminals mm-hmm. really don't give a damn about what the Firearms Control Act says. Yeah. Because exactly. they're criminals. So. Now we're making rather make the crime and the punishment more severe, but by saying we're going to restrict legal people's use and, and ownership of firearms is going to be the solution to the bad guys. It's like right. I don't understand that. Um, and if you're saying that because we're losing the firearms, well, the stats are showing you're losing the firearms at a much higher rate. And then when the, you know when the police lose an R5 or an R4, R5, you know that's that is a fully automatic weapon, and that seems to make people more scared than a semi-automatic equivalent. You know, when the military loses their, their firearms, it's, it's really military-grade weapons, if you want to use that term. Um, and as we saw, even with Norwood, we had policemen shot, was it, I think, earlier this year, shot by suspects. And it turns out that the firearms that the suspects were using came from the, from the Norwood police station own SAP-13 evidence locker. I mean, that's like the worst-case scenario. Your buddies are selling firearms that are then being used Use on you. as a policeman from your own station. And that's just a horrible scenario. So let's just talk quickly about this, Karat, sure. because I know it's something that you have some comments on too. Um, you're an expert on, on risk and threat assessment and, uh, and the management of those risks and threats. What are your thoughts on, on how the Marikana massacre happened with a, a nice hindsight of 10 years and the benefit of now knowing a lot more than we did at the time? Yeah, look, I mean, I wanted to first say, I mean, I haven't been following all what's come out from that. So I'm going to give you my layperson's knowledge, opinion of it. Um, I'm in two minds. I mean, if you look at some of the videos, you did see armed people approaching the, approaching the police and allegedly shots fired. If that's the case, one can argue that the initial shooting might have had some justification. How far it went, you might have said exceeded the, the, you know, what was justified under those circumstances. 
But I think ultimately, you know, command and control is going to be very essential in coordination of your resources in that type of incident. Now, whether that was effective and, and appropriate at the time, you know, as I said, I, I haven't been following what's been taking place. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy all around. I mean, I think, you know, could we have avoided that? Um, I think it is possible to have avoided that, that the shooting. Um, you know, I think do our police have to have more emphasis on negotiation? And I do think that I know some of the people who were involved in negotiations at that time. Um, and they were of the opinion that, you know, a lot more could have been achieved if negotiators had been given the time and the space to do so. So, again, I don't know what the ultimate facts that have come out to this. I haven't been following it. Um, but I do think we probably could have had a different outcome where less lives would have been lost if the, if the policing approach had been perhaps different. All right, then let me ask you a couple of, um, of kind of, these are the, the sort of questions that will come up if people were trying to get a sound bite out of either of you. Where do you think the most dangerous place in South Africa is? If you were, if you were dropped there, Gideon, and someone said to, you, <laughs> said to you, where would you least like to be dropped in South Africa without or with your firearm? <laughs> where would that be? So if I just went on murder statistics uh, on their own, and with, with no further outside external reference, anywhere from Hanover Park to uh, uh, what's the other one, Lavender Hill, mm. or anywhere on the Cape Flats, because some of those spots have murder rates in excess of 150 murders per hundred thousand population. If you if you had to extrapolate from it, which is actually worse than uh, most active war zones, with the exception of Syria. Wow, uh, that, that was that, that was about two years. Extraordinary. Uh, so, so, so definitely no. And I think if we look at gang violence, I'll just give some additional info. There's approximately hundred thousand gang members in the in Cape Town itself. If you understand that most gang members are men, and they're between a certain age, that means that one in about every twenty men you meet in Cape Town is a member of a gang. If you concentrate those in just the communities in which they operate, the number probably goes a lot higher, probably one in every 10 or one in every eight or possibly even one in every five people you run into uh, is a member of a gang. That, that, that is how big these gangs have gotten. And, you know, wow. you've, got, you've got the Americans gang, which is still the biggest one out there, but their, their main rivals, which are the 28s and their allies are getting kind of bigger and the turf wars are it's it's been hot for at, at least the past five six seven years um Jeez, that's... the horror stories there that, that that come out on a daily basis are extensive and what makes it worse is this is still not a difficult problem to solve but you look at what's happened with the police officers that are take, trying to take hard action against gang members they either end up dead or they end up rotated out of their position and redeployed somewhere else if they're high-ranking enough. There, there appears to be, by all sort of observation, strong political-level protection for these gangs. And we need to start asking some, some questions about that uh, at a national political level as to who and why. I've, hypothetically, but I think we all know, kind mm. of. 
Uh, do either of you have any uh, anything to say about our, our current um, Minister of Police or even the commissioners that he's installed in various places? And, and do we have anybody in the police who you would love to see just rise to the top? I mean, are there, are there ordinary officers? Because we can't tar everyone with the same brush. I'm always careful to, to say that there are always going to be good men and women who are trying to do as decent a job as possible. And, and yes, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult uh, business being in, in crime prevention. It's a difficult business being in our police. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily the most well-looked-after people. There are huge mental health issues that accompany so many of these people because of the nature of their work, and we don't look after them properly in South Africa. We just don't have the, the resources to be able to do that. Are there people in the police who you really think deserve a second shot at a top spot or even a first shot at a top spot? Are there people who you've been impressed with? Even if you don't mention names, there might be stories of people who've done incredible things in the police. Yeah, I think just on a senior level, look, I didn't know a lot of the generals when I was there, and I'm not too sure who's still there. But someone, unfortunately, I think his his period in the police is coming to an end would be someone like Godfrey LeBeer, who is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is ahead of the Hawks right now. Mm-hmm. Who always struck me as a very highly intelligent guy. And very, I mean, I think he also he left the police for a period when we were going through this very rough period politically. Yes. Um, you know, he began, he was practicing as an advocate and he was brought back. And he was always someone that struck me as, you know, good, solid leader, honest person, hardworking, highly intelligent. Mm. You know, I was kind of excited when... when um, uh, was made the acting national commissioner because at one point when I was still in the police he was my the general in the division that I was in and, and he struck me as a highly intelligent person and very decisive and he held people to account I mean our performance reviews that we would have every quarter were a nightmare it was for three or four days of you know you'd all be taken off somewhere in the bush and the three or four days from eight in the morning till 12 at night literally and he would grill you if you didn't achieve your goals and your targets and he would push you to increase your targets so I thought, wow, this would be a great guy to become national commissioner. And then, of course, he left under a cloud of controversy, and there are still cases pending against him. So, yes, and as you point out, there are great, amazing police members. And, and like you say, it's always good to acknowledge them. But if you look at the police as a brand, I mean, if, if you always say to someone, if, you, if a car company like Toyota made, let's, for example, say a 1,000 cars a year, it doesn't matter whether 20 of them are absolutely fantastic, they run until they have over a million kilometers and never break down. If the other 980 vehicles break down at the drop of a hat, the brand is suffering. And that saps at the brand suffering scenario situation. But yes, there are these wonderful individuals. And sadly, they don't often get the recognition and promotion. I I know guys who have been amazing detectives who have solved some of the most high-profile cases who have been warrant officers for 20 years. Um, Or captains for 25 years and not promoted, yet they're doing fantastic, amazing work. And that's just a situation that's demoralizing for other people who, who work hard. And I mean, is it, is it, is it as straightforward in the police that you, you only get a promotion if you are politically connected? Is it that simple? I do think there's a, a, a lot of that, who you know, etc. And I do think there are situations where, you know, it's just based on the merit. But having sat on some of these panels when we hire people, just in my own unit when I was still in the police, you know, yeah. You have five people sitting on the panel. One of them is from the unit, for example, it would be me in that scenario. And then four other people are from, you know, question documents in my case or this portion of the forensic division. And they all get an equal vote on the candidates. And I'll be sitting there going, no, this is a terrible candidate. Their answers are nonsense. And they'll be sitting there going, no, that's a, that sounds very like a great candidate. And they can outvote you. And you end up, and that was, was frustrating for me as we expanded. I'd end up with people who I thought 
you really shouldn't be in this unit. Um, but, uh, you know, I was outvoted by the four other people on the panel. Now, whether there was influence to, you know, mm. behind the scenes influence to those individuals, possibly, uh, I don't know. So, you know, just great people don't get promoted and recognized. And it's, it's a difficult job. If you look at the United States, the, the typically uh, law enforcement people serve for 20 years and then they go on full retirement. We still have this issue of you retire at the age of, was it, 60 or 65, no matter whether you had 40 years service or, yeah. you know, 25, et cetera, because police work is very demanding. So, you know, if you started when you're 20 in the United States by 40, you're on full retirement and you can start a second career somewhere else. Um, we just kind of drive our police men and women into the ground, specifically the ones that work hard and don't often give them the support and recognition that, that they need. Last word goes to you, Gideon. Uh, any comments on those? Uh, it's a it's a great summary. There are wonderful policemen and women still in the service. Uh, I think those that would do best in positions of leadership are unknown because they they are passed over for promotion as as a matter of rule almost. But then there's also the fundamental problem with the structure of the SAPs. We have to ask the question: Is it in 2022 still in the national interest to have a centralised national policing body? as opposed to one that's broken up and, and down to local level and, and performs a federal duty because the need for law enforcement in Sonnevater versus in Chane Metro versus in the city building Cape Town versus the versus rural Kazadin, those are all very different needs to, in my mind, to think that you can centralize decision-making on community policing at mm -hmm. that level. Good sure, point. there are functions that you can perform at a national level and sort of FBI-type uh, scenario, but... I think that we, we have an organization that is obsolete, that is poorly led, that has become demoralized due to all these problems, and that has led also to an extreme loss of, of very talented people that have taken their skills, their knowledge, everything that they've built over years and left, and that is perpetuating the, the almost race to the bottom that mm -hmm. we're seeing. And there, there are ways of addressing it, but I think we also need to have a debate on do we still need the SAPS in its current form? And can't we perhaps replace it wholly with something far better? Well, I hope I hope we can because uh, both of wow. you you've you've hardly given me um, comfort <laughs> this morning. But then I think that this is a problem that the whole world's dealing with at the moment. Silicide is going to have the very last word. I said you could, Gideon, but Silicide's kind of perplexed. The National Traffic Police in Lichtenberg just stopped and checked instead of asking for a bribe like the police in Brits. What the hell's going on? See, this is the kind of thing that we don't understand. Um, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you, Gideon. Thank you, Pumi. And we will see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. bright and early. That is the burning platform for this week. I hope it was interesting. I certainly want to thank our guests for bringing plenty, plenty of really, really relevant, useful and, uh, and new information to the show. And uh, I hope that this has been something that will inform us all better. Let's all keep our eyes open. Cheers, everybody. Bye-bye.